Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph of Talking Points Memo, sitting in this morning for Bill. We have got another busy day in D.C. Things never seem to quiet down around here. We'll start off with some headlines. What a, what a great start to the new year, right? Just like this is the full court press. Here we go. Just a couple of other stories making news. The story of the day, the story of the week so far for most people is the weather. The weather on the East Coast is uh, biblical, you could say. <laughs> uh, earlier in the week, we saw in Charleston, South Carolina, they got over seven inches of snow. Uh, there is a problem in Florida. It's so cold in Florida specifically in Miami. I didn't realize this, but if you go to Miami in the suburbs, apparently iguanas just sort of roam free. The problem is when the temperature dips below 40 degrees, which it has, they roam very, very slowly. And in fact, it puts them to sleep and they're falling from Mm -hmm. trees. So it's raining iguanas in Florida. If that's not like a horrifying headline. Sharks are freezing, too. Sharks are freezing as well. In fact, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission came out and said, look, a lot of people think that these iguanas are dead, right? Because they're falling from trees. They're not moving. They said, look, just leave them alone. If they fall, just leave them alone. They will wake up, and they might feel threatened if you're messing with them, and you might get (laughs) bitten by an iguana. Do you know what this reminds me of between, like, the movie Magnolia is all of a sudden yes. seeming oh, like yeah. like the, the the iguanas falling from the tree. Besides, like the the the, the crazy like like you know woman hating host the Tom Cruise plays that all of a sudden somebody else is <laughs> starting to remind me of like, <laughs> like like we actually have like iguanas falling from the sky yeah. and like we have like the entire East Coast down to Miami. Uh, D- DC is a frozen hellscape right now. I believe it's, is the technical term. It's so uh, cold. And be- be- between that and like the Trump Bannon feud, we actually are seeing hell freeze over yeah. right now. Apparently, <laughs> and yes. uh, it- it's it's just an, an incredible moment um, where basically everything is ice. By the way, in in Boston, Boston got rocked yesterday, and a lot of cities on the East Coast, as I mentioned, uh, are in the same boat. Not only did they get a lot of snow, like in Boston, they got 13 inches of snow. They also had a massive tidal surge where the water just came pouring into the downtown area. One of the commissioners, the commissioner of the Boston Fire Department, Joseph Fenn, says this is the first time I've ever seen anything like this. A buddy of mine 
lives about an eighth of a mile from the ocean in Situate, Massachusetts, which is a seaside town. The seawall literally broke. It's insane. Jeez. His front yard, he showed me a picture of it. There's just, it's, it's about five feet of water in his front yard with Oof. ice caps floating around. It, it looks like the end of the world. It really That's does. Insane. I was watching some of the footage of people trying to drive downtown, and the water comes up to nearly the window on their car, right? And they And they're just driving through this. Icy, slushy water? No thanks. I've seen multiple videos of Jim Cantori saving people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's apparently a hero. Tis the season. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, moving on, we we do have this big Republican uh, tax plan that went through before the end of the year. One of the companies that was lobbying for this tax bill was Comcast, and they said that if this happened, they would be able to create more jobs. Well, a new story says that Comcast fired 500 salespeople just before Christmas. And remember, they said that this tax cut bill that was that's coming uh, would create, quote, thousands of new jobs if this big tax cut went through. Uh, they tried to keep these firings secret while it lobbied for the tax cut that has been now passed into law and signed by Donald Trump. Uh, but they did fire 500 people, despite the fact that they said that they'd be doing a lot better. Oh, but Peter, you're missing the convenient talking point. The stock market hit an all-time high yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> Didn't yeah. you pay attention to that? Sorry, I, I missed that part of the story. Forget about people's jobs. There's a there's a big number on Wall Street. It's shiny. That's all you need to care about. I've Trump, got cha- Trump tweeted about it. I've got That's to change my, my sources for Full Court Press to just getting them solely from Donald Trump's Twitter account. Then I'll be able to more. Be or Drudge or Breitbart. Yeah, exactly. On TV and online, this is The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph sitting in for Bill today. I'm at under Cam underscore Joseph on the Twitters, and I'm with Talking Points Memo. And I'm sitting here with some wonderful folks right now who are going to be helping me through this hour, Peter and Jamie. And no, 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 no Cam, you're on your own. <laughs> yeah. From I'm here always... on out, we don't speak. You know what? You got two more hours, man. Do the job. <laughs> uh, basically, everybody in D.C. right now is talking about this bonkers book by uh, Michael Wolf that just came out. I'm going to admit haven't read it yet. came out very late last night. Uh, I've read excerpts, read his pieces on it. Uh, and this is just, I, I mean, e- even by the last year plus's standards, pretty nuts. There's there's something kind of crazy to be said about the fact that the president threatened a cease and desist letter to Michael Wolff about putting this book out, and so they they rushed the publication, yep. the, the release date, up to last night. Yep. Uh, because why not? This is like the time that we live in now. I mean, that, that's just like, can you imagine how much they boosted this book by threat, publicly threatening and making it all about you know all the crazy. I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that they decided to make this a huge fight with Steve Bannon, uh, because I honestly think, in some ways, that was a distraction from the larger point. Is that it wasn't just Steve Bannon; it's almost everybody in this White House, according to this book, uh, that thinks that Donald Trump shouldn't be, you know, running the nuclear system, yeah, uh, and and commander in chief and president. And you know, Michael Wolff does not have a sterling reputation. Uh, we need to put out there that he is 
a journalist who uh, has been accused of stretching, if not breaking the truth at times. Uh, He's the perfect journalist for the Trump era. Like, I mean, that, that, that's the, the baffling thing about this is, is like when you're talking about, you know, the, this author who's been accused of making stuff up versus the president of the United States and his former chief advisor. I trust this author if I had to pick one of them. Sure. Um, and, you know, I I don't know about some of these specific quotes, uh, the, the specific quotes that Steve Bannon uh, has has possibly ruined his career over uh, <laughs> calling calling Donald Jr. actions possibly treasonous. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you go after the president's son and, and not the son-in-law, the actual son. Uh, it's going to be hard to bounce back for you. He isn't denying the quotes that he said in this book. No. Uh, some others are are denying some of their quotes or nitpicking about what exactly they said or whether it was off record, which I think is all fair. Um, but, you know, A, this guy is saying that he has recordings of these conversations and he may not be fully truthful, but if he's got tapes, we'll, I assume, hear what those actual tapes say at some point. Uh, B, you know, he's writing this in, in a particularly brutal way, and I'm not sure that the details are all right, but I think the larger point is right. And that is that few people, even inside the White House, even inside the top tiers of government right now, think their boss should be in the position that he is yeah. and, and are basically treating him like a petulant child that they're trying to calm down at numerous points. And, you know, this is something, uh, you know, I, I mean, Wol Michael Wolf clearly had very good access, whether Donald Trump wants to admit that or not. Uh, other people have seen him at the White House uh, going into Bannon's office, going into other people's offices. Um and Trump claimed he authorized, quote, zero access to the White House, actually turned him down many times for author of phony book. In that same quote, uh, you know, he's going after the lies and misrepresentations and then attacks, you know, says, watch what happens to him and Sloppy Steve. Sloppy which apparently Steve! Is kind of, you know, the man may not. That's a good one. That, yeah, I, I mean, like. I'll give him credit. Right. Like, if <laughs> you just one let thing him write one, one liners, uh, he, he, he's. He is very good at nicknames. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a real raw talent there. Sloppy Steve is very Kid's good. Kid's got a future. <laughs> uh, but, you know, looking at this, uh, I mean, you don't throw your former chief advisor under the bus. He, I mean, granted, he was fired, but like I widely reported that he was still having fairly regular conversations with the, you know, with Trump himself. Uh, and Trump has this habit of firing people and then keeping them in his orbit afterwards. So yeah. we'll see if Bannon is done done or whether this is a one-time tantrum. Although it looks like the Mercer family who are his big sugar mamas and daddies like maybe pulling the plug on him and Breitbart. So that, that would be – or pushing him out of Breitbart possibly. So that will be a big, big story and big fallout from this. But the Wolf book, you know, it, Bannon is not the only one. I mean, yeah. Rince Priebus, who was the original chief of staff, everybody knew – didn't really think Trump should be president, and you know, before when 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 the Access Hollywood tape broke, uh, he called you know suggested Trump drop out, and he you know the, 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 it's not just him; it's a lot of people in the White House, and you know some of the, I, I covered the White House briefly uh, when I was in New York Daily News. I still dabble in it, but I'm not there every day. Even I've heard you know mid-level, low-level staff off record, and I'm not going to betray any confidences. You know, basically cringing and, and and talking about him like like he's he's a child, and that that you know he's he's impulsive and that they don't know what he's going to say, and 
you know, uh, wh- whatever you think about these people, a lot of them are professionals. Right. That, that that's a point yeah. I was that's, that's a point I was going to make because I did something that I that I I promised myself I wasn't going to do as much of in the new year, and I watched the White House press briefing. Yeah. Um, because it 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 really is just gamesmanship in there, and like they've got someone up there and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, just like they had in Sean Spicer, who will say anything. Yeah. Just to sort of change the subject or get off of the subject about the question that they're being asked, but um, there were multiple questions about. The mental stability of Donald Trump in the White House yesterday yeah. at the White House press briefing, and the fact that she has, I, I, I want to play her response in a second, but the sure. fact that she has responded to this in the first place shows that we're through the looking glass. Here. Yes, a hundred percent, and and hundred percent. No, you know, I, I don't think that there's been. I mean, in his, in his last years, Ray, Reagan may not have. You know, he was clearly starting to struggle with Alzheimer's, um, but you know, I, I, I there there was. He trusted his team. He would listen yeah. to his team. And there were people in the White House who you could trust to run the government and not stumble us into a nuclear war. Um, and I'm not confident that there's anybody in the Trump White House who can say no to the president and have him listen to them. Yeah. And that's honestly the, the scariest thing here. But here, here's what uh, Sarah had to say about uh, that question yesterday. I'm not going to. I'm not going to waste my time or the country's time going page by page uh, talking about a book that's complete fantasy and just full of tabloid gossip. Okay, maybe it's let's let's say the book is half BS, which, which <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't know Wolf's full career. I'm not judging whether or not he is a mostly good journalist or a mostly bad journalist. Even granting them that, it's still half true. Yeah. And and there's still a lot in here that everybody already knows. And, you know, I, I mean, it sounds like he had tremendous access and, you know, a lot of people slammed him for access journalism and for brown nosing with the president and, and making him sound really good in earlier pieces in order to get this type of access. Um, there, there's a publication that, that uh, is pretty divisive in D.C., but I, I think you can't question that. There's some really talented people over there, Axios, and Mike Allen is, is is the big star over there. And he basically went through, and, and he talks to all these people regularly. Sure, he has yes. tremendous access. Um, and, and I think the king of access journalism in Washington, D.C. is probably Mike Allen. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that, that there's some good things and some bad things about being that type of access journalism. Agreed. I, I think he, he definitely offers a ton of the mix. And he his morning note today basically said, like, maybe all the details aren't right, but a lot of the tone and how the the staff talk about Trump uh, and how Trump refuses to take in new information that disagrees with his worldview and trusts his instincts over any expertise or any facts, uh, refuses to prepare for things, uh, swings back and forth on issues, and that his own aides don't, you know, really hold him in, in low regard. And that that's Mike's words, not mine. And this is this is a guy who is known as a little, you know, pulls some punches on on people, uh, you know, his reputation. And I actually think he's been hitting the White House pretty hard lately, or hitting the president at least. Um, you know that that is notable that that a guy known for for you know pulling punches in access journalism. Um, and I think is a very good journalist, uh, don't get me wrong, is saying the exact same things that Michael Wolff, who, who the entire White House is now going ham over, yeah. is saying. And, okay, maybe, I'm not saying every one of these quotes is right, but I think the tone of it is right, and I think that the reaction uh, from the White House, they would not be reacting this way if this is all made up. 
I think that I think that is the most telling uh, aspect of all of this. Stop like, protest too much. The the fact that they went out and put out this ice cold statement. Not they. He Donald Trump. I mean, he made sure that everybody knew that he yeah. said this and they dictated it. That he put out this statement on Steve Bannon, calling him a staffer. Saying yeah. that he had lost his mind, yeah. Saying that he had nothing to do with the success of the Trump campaign. Um, I mean, it was icy cold. Yeah, and so and w- whether or not I, reading that statement didn't actually sound like Trump himself to me. I think there are a couple of staffers that it could have sounded like, but he clearly authorized the statement. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, some of it sounded awfully Trumpy, but I agree, not all of it did. I'm sure they they sort of finessed it a little bit to make it sound like it was. Too many compound sentences. <laughs> right, exactly. Which is notable that you can read something like that and say, well, that's too complicated for the president, for of, the the president of the United States. For the president of the United States. To probably have said. Yeah. Um, that's just not his syntax. Yeah. Uh, but, there weren't weird capitalizations in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, but I mean, that's the thing is, is like it, it, the questions about like, is Trump unstable and impulsive and not listening to f- basic facts and, and treat treats you know fact facts as, as pawns in his game and makes stuff up when he needs a good rook? Um, I don't think we need a book for that. We can just look at his Twitter feed. Yeah, like th- th- this is. I mean, like th- this is wild, and we get desensitized. And I think this is more of like a, this is waking us up to some. Of that desensitization, you know, it's like when when the feeling comes back in your foot after you drop something on it. Uh, but it's pretty incredible that this is even possible to be true, much less like being fully accurate. I mean, the, the fact that we're living in a world that, uh, you know, maybe not every single aide said every single thing in that book, but top aides to the president are seriously concerned about his mental fitness for office. Uh, is notable. And, you know, I, I think there, there's an argument that some in the national security structure are real patriots trying to protect the country and serving. I, I think there, there's a question, there's an honest question about complicity uh, here for, for some others. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's just incredible. And I mean, you, you look at the transition period and, you know, the, one of the Wolf's big claims here is that Trump never expected to win, was shocked by the results. Um, and, you know, they've pushed back really, really hard on that. But I think it was pretty obvious that that was true. The fact that he came out with a speech the night of, rushed out, that clearly wasn't written by him, that clearly hadn't been vetted. And that's been widely reported that, like, that was like a, oh, shoot, we have to write a backup yeah, speech. Yeah, and the yeah. backup speech was the we lose speech. Clearly, neither Clinton or Trump had a speech ready for, for Trump winning. Um, but... You know, it, it was the fact that they took Chris Christie, who Jared Kushner was at war with, who had been at one point top Trump advisor, um, and then pushed him out. And the terrible job that they gave him as a fall job uh, to get him the heck away from them was running the transition, was literally <laughs> staffing the government. And then when they won, they said, oh, shoot, we got this guy who we thought we were getting rid of running the entire operation. What are we going to do? And they basically pushed him out and got rid of every recommendation he had. You know, Chris Christie, for what you want to say, like, actually has run a state. And, like, actually it had relatively well-qualified people lined up for major government positions. But some of them had been critical of Trump. And a lot of them didn't get those jobs. Chris Christie, obviously not in the administration. Uh, so, you know, the the idea that Trump didn't think he was going to win, of course that's true, because that's why they put Chris Christie in that position in the first place. So, you know, you go point by point, and some of these, you know, some of these quotes are, are just wild. And I think that probably, uh, they, they read true to me, a lot of them. I don't know whether they all are. 
Um, but you know, I mean, we're, we're, the, the, this the situation is just incredible, and I think it, we can't a we, we we can't lose sight of the fact that we're in this universe. And I, I think sometimes you can get, especially in DC, just kind of lose sight of that. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit earlier this week. Um, you know, Washington DC political journalists, I think, are doing as, as best as they can for now. <laughs> I think there's been a learning curve of figuring out how to cover Trump. The people who are covering Trump the best these days are the people who came up in journalism in New York. Because Don, that, that is, I mean, Donald Trump, like it or not, he was sort of the king of New York media yeah. for so long. And he knew how to play New York media and get headlines in New York media. Yeah. And He's not doing anything differently than he used to do. It just the difference is now he is the president of the United States. Yeah. And so this play for headlines, this play for almost tabloid tacky kind of exposure uh, is pretty consistent with how Donald Trump has handled his career. And so a guy like Michael Wolff, who is a fixture of the New York media scene and has been for a long, long time, I think knows exactly how to cover Trump. And and you mentioned this earlier, and I, I would like to agree, Michael Wolff is not a character that I would trust to, you know, watch my kids. Like, he is not a trustworthy journalist. That yeah. being said, Donald Trump came out and said explicitly, I never met the guy, never talked to the guy, we never had any, anything at all for this book, he was never at the White House, and Michael Wolff says he's got tapes. Okay, you don't have to show us. Show us some proof. Yeah, and then and then fine. Yeah, and and that's the thing is I think we're you know when we go through the whole book and we actually get exposure to these tapes, I think we'll be able to talk a lot more inten- you sure. know, intelligently about this. Um, but I you know I, I think that it it almost doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, of course, it matters whether these facts, particular facts, and particular quotes are true. You know, as, as somebody who likes to try and be a rigorous journalist, not screw things up and make things up. Um, that's really important to me, and I think it's really important in an age of, of, of vast disinformation coming from the White House that you are very careful to get things right, because then it gives so it doesn't give them an opening to say, "Well, that's lie." You know, look, look at this error, look at this lie. It's all BS. Uh, I think it's really important to counter BS with fact. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of facts out there, and you know, I you mentioned New York journalism. I, I think one of the Greatest reporters of our generation right now, Maggie Haberman. Uh, you know, she came up in the New York tabloids. Yep. She was, you know, New York Daily News and Post, and uh, she's at the New York Times. And you know, is somebody who I, I think is, is treats Trump very fairly and gets a lot of access with him and with senior staff. And what she writes is brutal. Yeah. And I and the fact and he that he still loves her. I mean, Trump right. Still and and loves and, her. and the fact that they don't see what she's writing is brutal because she's reporting facts, basic facts out that horrify a lot of people um but they seem to think it's fine shows that they think it's fine shows that that she's getting a you know mostly if not completely correct and i think you know she is the pinnacle of good reporting right now in this era um and they're okay with it because it's just the reality of it and so we're, we're in you know a, a fascinating time and, and it, it you know at the same time there's so much you, you can fixate so much on the the chaos and crazy of what's happening and 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 just you know look at what what appears to be a you know careening carnival um there's so much real going on too yeah i mean ju- just you know everybody was talking about the book yesterday and 
we had, and we'll talk about this later in the show, but we, we had two major moves from the administration yesterday. Yes. Uh, the first on pot where Jeff Sessions basically made a hash of legal pot uh, and and totally rolled back what the Obama administration had done on and letting states run run their own pot programs, and it's unclear and it's just a complete mystery whether this is going to uh, basically destroy states' you know recreational programs, whether this is going to have any effect on medicinal marijuana, which Jeff Sessions has also not been very favorable to. And you know, there's eight states that pot is legal in now. It, it's about a third of the country's population can, because California is so large, and it's. You know, I, I think thirty-six states that have some form of legal medicinal right. marijuana. It's you know about two-thirds of states, um, and it's he just basically did this overnight, and like he obviously wanted to do this from the start. Uh, and, and the other big thing that isn't finalized yet, but it's a draft, is uh, the Interior Department. Ryan Zinke basically said, "Drill, baby, drill," and offshore oil and gas drilling on both coasts and the Gulf of Mexico and parts of the Arctic, like all over, basically all of, all of U.S. coasts everywhere, including parts that have been banned for decades and decades. The California coastline has not had new permits issued since 1985. Under Reagan, they weren't issued. And now we're talking, and this has to be finalized. You, I mean, you saw two major things where top Republicans freaked out yesterday that that was to me i think uh a really eye-opening part of the story because cory gardner came out yesterday and was like about the about yeah. the marijuana stuff i mean he's seen what legalized pot has done for colorado yeah and it's fixed their state budget it's exactly i mean they are making money hand over fist yeah. in colorado and other states like, you know, Washington, D.C., it's legal here, but we're not making any money off of it. Because Congress screwed it up. Because Congress screwed it up. But, like, there are states that are making millions. They're saying, like, in the next couple of years, like three years, they anticipate is what it's going to take for California to to get over the $1 billion, billion. revenue mark for pot. Three years. In three years, they're going to yeah. make a billion friggin' dollars. Yeah. And so like if you are a capitalist <laughs> and if you are someone who believes in states rights and you start yelling Dr. Evil like numbers <laughs> uh, for a state budget. I mean, that's yeah, in, it's incredible. Um, and yeah. And, and Jeff Sessions, who uh, has hated pot and and basically said you can't be a good person if you smoke pot. And, you know, made a joke at one point in the early 80s. And part of the reason he didn't end up getting confirmed as a judge the first time in the early 80s was he said something along the lines of, you know, KKK members, you know, didn't see anything wrong with them until he found out they smoked they weed, smoked by, uh, yeah. which I honestly think was probably a bad joke by him. Sure. But, you know, it's tell I think it was a lot more telling about his views on weed than his views on the KKK. <laughs> right. um, but it he's you know been a, you know, bring back dare crusader. From the start, and really has you know maybe not even 1980s, maybe 1950s views on, on, on the demon weed. And well, that's the thing. Like a 1980s view would be like, I'm okay with medical marijuana. And in the 19, 19- yeah, most of the country didn't think that way back and, then. Right, right, right. But like, that's what I'm saying. Like in 1980s, like that would be a whoa, that would be a kind of a crazy thing to say. Whereas like now, 
I, I, I you've got to be at least for medical marijuana. I, I don't think it's a huge hurdle to get over as a politician no. to come out and say like, I am for medical marijuana. Yeah, like I think that that's a pretty easy bar to get. Yeah, over. And, and we've seen the polling on this shift so rapidly. Oh my god! Um, and part of that I, is just a generational shift. The fact sure. that that the oldest people are are no longer with us, and they're the ones with the most anti pot views. But I mean, we're, we were seeing the movement on this even faster, I think, than we saw it on gay marriage, which took. About 15 years, really, from yeah. from Gavin Newsom making his move in uh, California to now, and you know Massachusetts legalizing it, um, to now, um, you know, just a couple of years ago it was still majority against legal recreational marijuana. Now we're looking at a strong majority. Gallup had it at 64 percent of Americans approve legal recreational marijuana, and that includes half of Republicans. <laughs> And so, I mean, I think that, that pot is a huge deal. I think this offshore drilling, if it happens, is an even bigger deal um, for for the you know the environmental damage it could cause. Uh, and you know, I, I think we're going to get this in the next half hour with uh, Ian Russell. But uh, just in, both of those things are real problems that really divide Republicans. And I think politically, these both are disastrous, possibly, especially for some of these coastal Republicans and in, in states that have legalized pot. Well, it's you know you talk about the the whole politics of the '80s or the '50s or whatever. Like these are two issues that I think even a lot of Republicans have come around on. Even though a lot of Republicans, I think, still will come down on the wrong side of environmental safety and environmental health. I think that like offshore drilling off of the coast of the United States, even if it's just an aesthetics problem for them. Uh, like, or a NIMBY problem. Sure, yeah, like, sure. NIMBIB, not on my back beach. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was talking, uh, we'll talk about this a little bit because Ian and I talked about this yesterday. Um, but, you know, a lot, lot, lot of rich Republicans own beachfront property in Florida sure. and California. Sure. A lot Absolutely. Of important congressional seats there. And so for them to have to go out and talk to their constituents and say, oh, yeah, that giant oil rig that you can spot from your private uh, balcony at your beach house, I'm okay with that. They don't want to have to make that argument. Yeah. They don't want to have to make that argument. And they don't want to have to make or the, the argument. Or the Republican, you know, to, to the voters who had to clean up after deep water. Right. Right. Exactly. And they don't want to have to go and say, like, hey, your college age son that's now going to be in jail for 20 years because he had a gram of weed. I'm okay with that, too. Like, they don't want to have to go make those arguments. Like, so, like, the idea that Trump and Sessions and Zinke and the whole group thinks that this is a winning argument is not only 10 years old, it's like 30 years old. I mean, I, I, th- I think the real drilling they're doing is they're drilling down to the, the bedrock of their hardcore supporters. And I think that they're just everybody sure, in the administration but- doing whatever they want, ignoring the the polls on this. And I don't. It's baffling. You know, when, when it comes to the issue of weed, weed, uh, Donald Trump has, uh, hasn't has always thought this way. I right. don't think he yeah, actually he, he, thinks that Jeff Sessions, I don't, I don't think he actually no, this sides is a Jeff with Sessions Jeff Sessions. Yeah. And I, can we play these two clips? Yeah. One from yesterday at the press briefing with Sarah Sanders, where she goes ahead and alleges that Trump's position on marijuana has never changed. The president's position hasn't changed, but he does strongly believe that we have to enforce federal law. And the second, a clip that went viral on Twitter yesterday, all the way back from July 29th of 2016. All the way back. All the way back, right? Seems like a long time ago. (laughs) Uh, From Nine News in Colorado, when Donald Trump was on the campaign trail, 
a reporter by the name of Brandon Rittman, asking him about what he would do with marijuana, positing the question uh, about a former uh, former presidential candidate, Chris Christie, what he said he would do. So Chris Christie was one of the first sort of establishment guys to really like jump in with both feet for you. Um, he gets talked about as a possible AG pick, but he was also the only presidential candidate who was campaigning saying he would use federal authority to shut down sales of recreational marijuana in states like Colorado. Yeah, I wouldn't do that, no. You wouldn't let him? No. If you, even if you picked him as well, AG? I don't know. I mean, you're asking me. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, no. Yeah. So you think Colorado should be able to do what it's doing? No, I think it's up to the states. Yeah, I'm a states person. I think it should be up to the states. Absolutely. So ah, I want to pull my hair out. Just like with the Department of Justice, Donald Trump doesn't understand that he can tell the people that work for him what he wants them to do. Well, and you know what? Like, there, uh, so I will give him that. Like, there's supposed to be some separation between the president and the Department of Justice and the legal structure of what's enforced. And that's something that's a little bit gray area. Um, but I, he's OK, he's hands off on this one. Then why did he try and, as the New York Times reported yesterday, and which we've all, I think, known for a while, push Jeff Sessions very hard not to recuse himself from the Russia probe and then yeah. was furious and almost fired him afterwards. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. Either the president can tell the attorney general what to do, and Trump said that he wasn't going to do this. So he is specifically a flip-flopper on this issue that, you know, you can giggle about weed uh, all you want. But, I mean, this is a a real health and crime issue um, and and incarceration issue uh, and a huge budget issue for these states that have legalized it. or you can say, well, then what the heck is he doing meddling with Jeff Sessions when he wants to? And I think, honestly, both are both are a serious issue. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're in an interesting spot here. And, uh, you know, I think the biggest question is, is what happens in 2018 if we keep going this direction. So we'll be back in a minute to talk about that. I wouldn't do that, no. You wouldn't let him? No. If you, even if you picked him as well, I don't know. I mean, you're asking me. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph of Talking Points Memo, sitting in for Bill this morning. I'm at Cam underscore Joseph on the tweeters. And I've got Ian Russell in, top Democratic strategist, worked for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, among many other places in the past. He's at It's Ian Russell on Twitter. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here on this cold morning in Washington. So you're working on a bunch of races, uh, primarily House races. Think you guys will pick up the House? Well, it's going to be close, I think. Right now, uh, things are going I'd, – I'd rather be us than them. But I liken it to when a plane is taken off and you cross 10,000 feet and those double chimes go off, 
that indicates that everything is going the way it needs to go. Yeah. If those chimes don't go off, you have bigger problems on your hands. Um, right now, the chimes are going off. We are we are ascending. Things are going in the right direction. Not sure how high we're going to get yet, but um, which is a great tie-in to your last segment uh, <laughs> on the program. Uh, but it is going very well, and I'd rather be us than them. It seems every day the Trump administration picks a new issue out of a bowl uh, and um, and finds some new group to offend. <laughs> anger or most importantly give a motivation to turn out yeah and we're talking about that a little bit and you and i talked about this yesterday i mean the the offshore drilling move and the pot move and i honestly think that the offshore move is probably the pot move is is probably a little bigger of a base motivator generally for democrats but i think that the offshore drilling specifically in some of these districts is poisonous and Uh, you've you've worked in florida can you talk a little bit about i mean uh, you, you had Alex Sink race against Rick Scott, right? Yeah, I remember. I've I've done a number of uh, races in in Florida, and I and I remember uh, actually on a special election in 2014, uh, seeing in graphic terms the, the 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 political impact of of offshore drilling. You know, I think the Trump administration likes to get liberals in coastal states fired up and yeah. angry. I think that's a that's a form of recreation for them. Um, the problem is what they're doing with this offshore drilling. Uh, uh, lifting of the ban is actually giving people who probably voted Republicans for years financial incentive to to, to vote for somebody else. Because yeah. when you stand in Pinellas County, Florida, outside of Tampa, and you look out across the Gulf of Mexico, uh, uh, you are looking, you are standing on beautiful, expensive real estate. Yeah. And if you have a spill off uh, offshore, that is that is a financial cost to those homeowners, um, many of whom are, are Republicans. I mean, if you look, I use Pinellas as an example because that's where I was working. It's basically St. Petersburg, um, the Republican part of the county is uh, the, uh, the, the the part on the Gulf with the nice homes where opposition to drilling is very, very high. Not for fuzzy environmental reasons, just for financial reasons. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that is true, not just in, you know, Florida, obviously huge, big state that matters a lot uh, for, you know, the presidential in 2020, uh, possibly, especially if Rick Scott, who we just mentioned, you know, the governor of Florida runs for Senate, which it initially looked like he was definitely going to do, and now maybe, maybe not. Um, this is the cycle that has launched a thousand polls, I suspect, <laughs> yeah. as people are trying to figure out whether, right. and he's whether got, they want to weather the He's got the money to, to run all thousand himself. Exactly. Um, and, you know, would probably single-handedly make that a very different race. But I, thinking in Florida, every little thing, I mean, this is this yeah. is an example of how I'm, I'm not smart enough to see how this makes sense for what the Trump administration is doing, and I feel like I'm saying that every day. You take a state that is balanced 50-50. Between what's happening in Puerto Rico and the mass yeah. migration of Puerto Ricans to right, let's let, uh, let's Florida. destroy a, a, an island and have all of those people who are move to a legal U.S. citizens. Yeah. yeah, to move to a single. I mean, that was already a problem for them last cycle that I wrote about early on. Yeah. Marco yeah. Rubio trying to court Puerto Rico Puerto Ricans and uh, you know Hillary making a big play for them. You know, and, and Rick Scott has been a avid loyal Trump ally mm-hmm. even during the primary. He like kind of didn't really support Marco Rubio in the primary and like was always a Trump guy. And this is the first time I've seen a break with Trump. Um, you know, he he really went after him, uh, demanding that that the remove Florida from consideration was, was the line that he used, you know, basically saying that he was furious with Zinke. Um, Brian Mast, who's, who's mm-hmm. a freshman from a, a swing district, um, who has been a pretty loyal Republican on all these issues, uh, called it extremely alarming and unacceptable. Uh, and, you know, th- those are not things – when you see swing state folks and swing district folks freaking the heck out like that, those are canaries in the coal mine. Absolutely. And you 
see them trying to get distance. But as we saw with Democrats in Obamacare, and granted, they, they're more ex- overexposed in Republican areas, it almost doesn't matter how you vote or what no. you say on no, these things. You, the national party is going to doom you. Absolutely right. I mean, you look back at – in a wave election environment, voters aren't uh, inclined to sit down and take the time to parse your record and compare it to your party leaders. In 2010, there were some very talented, uh, very good House candidates or House members yeah. who got swept out in the wave. Um some of whom had voted against Obamacare. They'd voted against their party's priorities. But in a yeah. national, you, th- you think Stephanie Herseth uh, in South Dakota was one of the more prominent examples of yeah. them, who ran an ad about how people in Washington just didn't understand South Dakota in both parties. Uh, didn't matter. Voters yeah. wanted to send a message. And right. that it, puts... It, if I recall, it was, it was 40 Democrats voted against Obamacare mm-hmm. and 34 of them lost. Yeah. Yeah. And and if you're Carlos Corbello, who represents Miami in a district that Clinton won overwhelmingly anyway... Yeah. You, you, this It's like every day Trump is making your life harder yep. as you're trying to get reelected. Um, and if you put a number of these House seats in Florida uh, more in play than they already are, again, the circumstances are – uh, getting set up right now for yeah. a great uh, a great night for for Democrats in November. Right, and I think Florida is emblematic of this. And, and there's really only three swing districts. There may be four if it's a really big wave. Um, but the but other the Democrats have a couple of defense too. I mean, I, yeah. I mentioned Pinellas County. I mean, Charlie Crist, unique political figure, very popular in Pinellas. So he's probably going to be okay. But that is a that started the cycle. Yeah. Uh, and last cycle, we had to spend a you know million dollars in there there just to make sure that that he won because. Right. It was not a sure thing. Um, but the, what we're seeing across the country, and Florida's emblematic of this, is that the entire map is tilting just a couple of points blue. Right. And that helps and, secure and this incumbents. And this is another, like, you know, bit, bit of hay on the stack. You know, exactly. Like, like the, the, another straw or two on the back of the camel. I, right and, now we're, we're taking steel girders and putting them on the back of the camel. I think we're beyond <laughs> straw. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> no, you can't even uh, track the straw given what happens just on a daily basis. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, this isn't just Florida. I mean, you, you go up and down the coast and, and there are a couple of swing areas in Virginia. Virginia Beach mm-hmm. uh, is, is a big swing area that the, the Democrat just won for governor. Uh, Ralph Northam cleaned up pretty there. And we, we just saw... Uh, you know, a Republican uh, delegate seat in Virginia Beach that no one even thought was on the map. They Republicans managed to hold on because they you made a joke about this earlier, drew his name from a bull right. after an exact tie <laughs> of more. It was 11,608 <clears throat> votes apiece. And there's going to be litigation about this. So My we'll teenage years spent knocking doors and, and canvassing suddenly feels very vindicated. It right. Really, it really matters. <laughs> how if you, you ever thought campaigns. your vote doesn't matter. Right. Um, but but this is this is the the horror that Republicans are faced with right now because they've really backed themselves into a corner. I mean, if I were Congresswoman Barbara Comstock from suburban Washington on the Virginia side, or Congressman Peter Roskam from from Illinois in the the Tony Chicago suburbs, was, um, I think you guys drew that as a vote sink for Republicans. The whole, there there the were a lot too. of Republicans there, and. You know, the suburbs, and we should probably talk in greater detail about this, but the, the suburbs are moving away from Republicans. Yeah. You and I have joked about the Brooks Brothers revolt. I mean, I, if I were Peter Roskam or, or, or Barbara Comstock or many others, I would have watched in horror the scenes that unfolded at the end of December as you watched um, um, suburbanites wait in line um, to pay to prepay their property taxes because of this disastrous, ill-conceived uh, Republican tax bill, in some cases, giving the government an interest-free loan of ten or twenty thousand dollars because it turns out that they couldn't prepay their taxes in their particular political jurisdiction. Yeah. Shout out to our mayor here in D.C., Muriel Bashir. Um, but 
in, in the suburbs right around us, they couldn't. And those are the kind of things that will stick with people. Those will those are the sights and sounds that they'll remember when they go to vote this this coming November. Yeah, and who ever thought that Republicans could make cutting taxes a losing issue for themselves? It, only Paul Ryan and this bunch of geniuses could figure out how to screw yeah. that one up. And, and, and I think this, that that bill may become a little more popular than it is currently when some people start getting tax breaks they didn't think they're going to get because all the all the benefits for individuals are front loaded in the first couple of years. It gets much worse as you get further into it. Uh, but well, look at the stimulus. Look at some of the other things that were done to cut the, the Obama payroll tax cut over the years. People don't pay attention, really, I think, until they and the, and the, and the polling backs yeah. this up until they sit down and do their taxes for the year, yep. which I suspect there'll be a lot of uh, unemployed former Republican members of Congress. Uh, around the time that people are figuring that maybe they made a little something off of this. But in the meantime, the headache and the fact that everybody knows that this isn't geared to help them in the middle class, it's geared to help the ultra-wealthy and big corporations who have been funding the Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, we saw the pay- the payroll tax cut in, in the stimulus. Actually, middle-class ca- tax cut. That yeah. actually immediately gave people money back, right. and it didn't matter. No right. one noticed. Right. So I, I think that this is and, – and, and it's one of those, you know, broad – minor help for people with specific pain for certain constituents. The specific pain is going to come in some of these districts that they're already struggling in, that this drilling is going to be mm-hmm. a huge problem in. And, and in California, where pot is going to be a huge problem. And you, you want to, you, you, would you want to be Daryl Issa right now, who right. voted against this tax bill, was one of the few Republicans early on who was like, this is dumb, this is bad for my constituents. And a lot of the other Republicans down there weren't, weren't quite as smart as Daryl Issa politically. No, take like Mimi Walters, who's never been in a tough race before. Ed I mean, Royce, if, yeah. Ed Royce, if you're in a Republican in Orange County, being a targeted member of Congress is a completely new experience for you after yeah. Clinton won. And, and you're sitting in a, in a district that, that you know, pot passed. Uh, I mean, it, it passed not, it didn't win as wide as Clinton did. So some of those districts that Clinton won by four points, pot probably narrowly failed in. But, you know, they're, they're, Dana Rohrabacher is actually mm-hmm. pro weird. He's, he's Laguna Beach. Like, you, you, you look out, and, and I mean, I think probably Dana's race is going to be a lot more about the Russia stuff than I, anything. I suspect. But, um, you know, a, a lot, Isa is on the beach. Right. You, he doesn't want drilling along that very expensive, right. very fancy part of, of the water. And and even his constituents, even if even if they're not engaging in the legal activity in California or other things, they, they I think there is this sense out there, and, and we see this with all the drama around the Trump administration, that this isn't what we should be focusing our time on. Yeah. That there are more important issues that the country is facing right now. And whether you live in a mansion uh, uh, on the Pacific Coast in, in Dana Rohrbacker's district or in suburban Chicago or in suburban Washington or in suburban New York or in upstate Maine or upstate Minnesota, you know, someplace that Democrats used to do well, very uh, used to do very well in and have to kind of fight to get back. Regardless of who you are, and where you come from, you get the sense that Washington doesn't have to work yeah. this way, shouldn't be working. And this, this is the biggest question I have, because I think yeah. it, is, it is crystal clear to me, and we've seen elections prove this already in Virginia, in Alabama even, that upscale, college-educated white voters who used to be Republicans mm-hmm. are aghast at what's happening mm-hmm. and are going to be voting Democratic in huge numbers. And Republicans have a, a suburban problem that is going to doom a lot of their candidates, and the question is only how many and how right. big this wave becomes. The big question I have is part B of that. And I talked to another former D-trip uh, guy early in the cycle who you know, basically said, like, the worst thing that can happen to uh, to the Republicans this cycle is that they end up owning Donald Trump's crazy in the suburbs and end up owning Paul Ryan's policies in these populist, more rural areas. Mm-hmm. And that part B, I'm still wondering how much that's going to come back, whether, whether those two districts in Iowa, whether the more rural district in Minnesota that you mentioned, uh, my, the the downstate Illinois district centered around East St. Louis right. and Carbondale, right. are those districts going to come back? 
Are we going to see some of these districts that the Republicans gerrymander for themselves in Wisconsin possibly come on the board? Um, you know, could Paul Ryan himself be any danger? I'm kind of skeptical of that specifically, but um, yeah, there's there's three there's there's three categories in the fight for the House, right? There's the suburban upscale districts, as we talked about. There are the straight up wave districts that like. You know, it's 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 like a saucer when you pour liquid on it. If you pour too much, it overflows off the side. Those are the overflow <laughs> districts. That's when you're that's when you're really in a wave. It happened in ten. It happened in six. It happened in eight. Yeah. The ones you're you're referencing, and I think you're you're right to bring this up. Uh, they're ancestrally Democratic districts that um, found a lot of appeal in what Bernie Sanders was saying mm-hmm. and what Donald Trump was saying. Yeah. And. Um, you take Bruce Poliquin in, in in northern Maine. It's it's really most of Maine, not just northern Maine. Uh, Jared Golden is a is a friend and client of mine who's a Marine veteran and uh, deputy leader of the state house. Um, the Democrats in the state house. He's running on a very robust populist platform. I think that's what Democrats need to do to crack into these districts. Yeah. Voters up there voted for Trump, frankly, because they wanted lower health care. They, they wanted lower health care costs. Uh, they wanted more coverage. They wanted infrastructure. They didn't want TPP. They, they didn't hated want trade, trade deals. That's, and frankly, yeah. they just hated a Washington establishment that had left them behind. But they're not Republicans. And if Democrats go back to their roots and field candidates who um, are able to to express that robust populism. Rick Nolan in Minnesota is a great example of this. Um, you know, Rick Nolan is a is, is a proud populist uh, who's always been uh, uh, looking out for working people. That's how to win these districts back. Um, Maybe raise a little more money than yeah, sometimes raises. Well, it's always a very expensive race. <laughs> Iowa is interesting because in the in the old Bruce Braley seat in Northeast Iowa, uh, you have this kind of Democratic. DNA type district that's that's kind of rural, yeah. uh, white working class. But then you go to the third district, David Young's uh, seat. That's Des Moines and its suburbs. So you could have two kind of seats moving in a different direction. So it, it, as usual, Iowa is a state to watch for yeah. for many many reasons. Uh, and, and Young's seat is really because it does get really rural really fast. I mean, it does. It well, all, you leave you leave West Des Moines the, and it's yeah it, it draw yeah you, it's ba- it's basically just corn and soybean fields until you get to the and windmills. Yeah, some Don't nice windmills. windmills. Yeah, <laughs> um, and you get to the Omaha suburbs right before you know you hit the border. Which again, um, Omaha. Brad Ashford's running again for Congress, former congressman from there. I mean, that will be a race to watch. Omaha has all of the elements of these suburban districts. Yeah. Just Fewer people because it's a smaller city. Yeah. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas, the, the the Yoder seat. There's been some upheaval in the Democratic field out there, uh, yeah. but it's still early in the cycle. And as the DCCC and kind of Democrats, uh, the, the 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 great left wing conspiracy are in the <laughs> process of getting candidates in the few remaining seats left to go, um, the energy and the enthusiasm and the, the enthusiasm that we're seeing is should give Republicans a lot of concern. Yeah, and, and it's you know you're going to have to kind of walk and chew gum. You're going to have to win. A lot of both types of districts in wave elections that becomes a lot easier. And, Absolutely, uh, you know. I, I guess in a wave election you have to surf and chew gum. If I'm not going to mix my metaphors, <laughs> but, uh, it does. It does. It does feel like we have Sounds a like huge, terrible combination. Yeah, I mean, and you see the generic. I mean, the I've a lot of smart people have told me over the years. You know, Democrats probably need to be winning the generic ballot by seven to eight points to have a That's realistic right. shot of winning back the House, and it's in double digits right now. Mm-hmm. Depending on the poll, I'm seeing 11, 12, 13. If it stays there, Democrats probably win back the House. I, I don't care how gerrymandered things are. Um, if we're at seven or eight, this is go- this is going to be you know knife fight in a phone booth in every di- district across the country, and candidates right. will matter, and, and individual races will matter. The Senate, I think, is really interesting right now. The fact that you guys pulled off that Alabama feat, 
um, or that they they completely blew a race in Alabama. I was saying, you know, Roy Moore is kind of the co-chair of the Doug Jones for Senate Victory Committee here. <laughs> he, yeah, the gift that keeps on giving but, to you but, guys. But, yeah. but 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 now Senator Jones is a great example of the kind of candidate I think you're going to see come to Washington this year. In a, in a, in a, if you have a candidate who is a, a good, he's a good candidate, and he ran a good campaign, yeah. and he didn't get in any trouble, and he had a great profile. So for the abortion comments, he really ran a. He ran a. Pretty, he ran a very, very yeah. for a, for a political campaign in this day and age where everything winds up on YouTube. He he, he did a very, very, very good job, and you're going to see people like that come to Washington uh, in as a result of this November's elections. Well, and, and what you see is is in a wave election, there's there's these guys who you, people like you recruited for cycles, yeah, who. Eh, I'm not going to run in 2010. Why would I do that to myself? Why would I lose this race? Uh, 2012 seems tough. Like, uh, and some of those people did run, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but but sad. one actually one of the best but things they're running now. Yeah, all they are. They are. Guys. And and the ones that the Republicans want running. I mean, you see this that they're they're having a big recruiting problem on the Senate side. Right. Um. And some of these are going to be ugly primaries between like you know B to B minus candidates and right. whoever survives will come out. Um, you know, in Montana, they, they, they missed their top recruit. I mean, mm-hmm. in Missouri, I think Josh Hawley is a decent candidate, but, uh, you know, they wanted Ann Wagner and right. she took a pass because she saw what type of cycle was, this is right. turning into. Um, but the great thing, the great the exciting thing on our side right now, you know, you have the, the, the politicians and I've seen this every cycle, you get local politicians who are a little too, uh, calculating and strategic and they always miss their moment. Yeah. They often miss their moment. There's never a perfect time to run for Congress. And unfortunately I can't guarantee electoral results to prospective candidates. But it's the people who just want to get involved and stop the nonsense that they see going on in Washington uh, that are so refreshing this cycle. I mean, we talked about the Peter Roskam district in Chicago, uh, suburban Chicago. Kelly Mazeski, uh, who's the Democratic frontrunner out there, backed by Emily's List, got involved because she's a breast cancer survivor. One of your clients, right? She's a client. She's a friend. She she announced the day that the Republicans passed their health care bill because to her this was just nonsense. Uh, that passed our health care bill through the House. Uh, it's people like that that step up to run. Now, you also get very talented local uh, politicians and Democratic candidates that you mentioned that, that uh, Democrats have gone out for cycles. It's staying in Illinois, Brendan Kelly, uh, who's a state's attorney uh, outside of St. Louis on the, on, the, um, on the Illinois side, definitely a guy to watch. We tried to get him for years. Uh, he seems to be running a good campaign, raising good money. That district swung hard to Trump. Anthony Brindisi uh, in upstate New York. Um, New York 22. This is this is a white working class district, but he's a very talented, good candidate. Um, you see this great combination, this cycle. And I think that broad diversity of candidates, finding candidates that fit the districts, uh, that's still an ongoing effort as we're months away in many states from filing yeah. deadlines. And, and in a lot of these races, just because it's the best candidate in the general, like you guys have like seven, eight people in some of these primaries. It's oh, yeah. Be- these clown car primaries sometimes lead to some very flawed candidates coming out. And I think that's a worry for you guys. It, discuss, it's but- it, it, it's. I would still take it over over the alternative. Uh, in, Good in problem the, to have, in yeah. the past, we've had to beg, beg and plead people to run. But you go to these districts, and I'm I'm blown away by this. There are eight or nine candidates. They're already holding candidate forums and debates that are all winding up on YouTube, which I'm sure the NRCC is is already on. Yeah. But there are eight, literally 800 people in one of these districts showed up for an eight way candidate forum. <laughs> That's crazy in a district that's never been competitive before. Yeah. So if you're Daryl Issa, if you're Dana Rohrbacher, if you're Mike Kaufman, if you're Barbara Comstock, if you're if you're uh, well, you see people like Jeff Flake heading for the exits because they know they're going to have tough races. Uh, we still have not uh, seen, I think, many of the retirements coming down the, the track. Yeah. And and I think that that's true. And we just saw two more yesterday from the GOP mm-hmm. side, including one that may be a competitive district. Um 
you think the Senate's in play? I think the Senate is absolutely in play. I think both the Senate and the House are in play. Whether we can get there remains to be seen. But Doug Jones' victory changes everything. I mean, we yeah. at the beginning of the cycle, we it's were not talking about we were talking about how bad is it going to be in the Senate, right? How and, many? How much are you going to lose? And I, listen, Kirsten Cinema, very, very, very strong candidate. I think there's a reason no one has uh, no one strong has gotten that race yet. If it's just her versus Kelly Ward, Arizona is still not, uh, I mean, uh, 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 that will change. The question of whether like Mar- Martha McSally jumps in there, and obviously. Uh, with John McCain's serious health issues, I think people are, are kind of seeing whether he'll waiting to see. In Arizona, Arizona's a late, late, late filing, late primary. Yeah. Uh, everything. So that's still has yet to develop. It, but Cinema's very good candidate. Cinema doesn't have a primary though, and I think right. there will be a primary on the GOP side. That Absolutely. Even with John McCain was kind of draining last time, and Kelly, he only beat Kelly Ward by about fifteen, and like right. he ended up, you know, a nationally renowned war hero. You know, he still had to run a real race, even right. though he won it pretty well. Right. Look, Jackie uh, Rosen is a phenomenal candidate. I mentioned somebody who really came out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, Jackie was a community leader. Congresswoman Rosen was a community leader before she ran for the House last cycle. Other local politicians took a pass on that race. She stood up to run just because she wanted to change the way things were working in Washington. She's she's running a phenomenal well, Harry campaign Reed out there. Well, Harry Reid wanted I mean, you know— I, it, for, former leader still runs that state, but yeah, I mean, Dean not Heller, a bad guy. Have n- another guy who got tied into knots on this, but legal yeah. pot in Nevada, and uh, Heller came out with a very soft statement. He got hit by both Rosen and hit Heller's primary opponent, Danny Hurkane. Right. He said this is ridiculous. So, thanks for coming on, Ian. It Absolutely, it's great to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph filling in for Bill this morning. I'm at Cam underscore Joseph on Twitter. We're with Elise Foley. We'll be talking a lot about immigration politics and what's going to happen with DACA. She's at Elise Foley. We're going to get through some headlines first, Peter. Yes, indeed. This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. I'm still a Jeopardy guy. Do you watch Jeopardy? Oh, yeah. We still watch Jeopardy in my house. I think Jeopardy's great. I love Jeopardy. <laughs> great. I watch Jeopardy. You got to look at yeah, right. <laughs> the th- yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, so yesterday Jeopardy had to come out and say that the show is on hiatus. They're having to take a brief hiatus because Alex Trebek underwent an unexpected surgery last month. Apparently, he fell and hit his head oh. in October, uh, and he was okay. He kept doing the show, but the problem is. He was diagnosed with a subdural hematoma and underwent surgery to remove blood clots from his brain. We had brain surgeries. Oh, no. Jeopardy wants us to know he's doing fine, he's recovering, and he's going to be okay. He's going to come back. But, of course, they have to 
go on a little hiatus while he recovers. So uh, there won't be any new Jeopardy episodes for a little while, but he will be back. I think I said this recently on the show when we talked about Jeopardy last time, but this comes as no surprise because he is Canadian. Alex Trebek, I met him a couple years back. One of the nicest people. (laughs) One of the nicest celebrities. Oh, I thought that you meant his... He's illness. in the hospital. Yeah. No surprise. Great Canadian. He takes care of himself. Canada pays for everything. He takes care of himself. Very Canadian. Really nice guy. That's all I have to say. Uh, you guys ever go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York? I've yeah. been. Well, the thing is, if you go, it's a pay what you wish policy. If you go in, you can pay, but you don't have to pay. It's a strong suggestion. It's a strong suggestion that you pay. Well, the strong suggestion is no more. Beginning March 1st, they announced yesterday, you will have to pay the full $25 admission fee. That is what they insist that you pay. It's no longer a... We would like you to pay this. It's like if you want to get in, you're going to pay this money. I think it's. I mean, it's a change. Obviously, it's a sign of the times. But There's a lot of art there. It's yeah, it's an expensive it a lot museum. Yeah, I. You know, my mom is an artist. I believe people should pay for art. I have no problem with that. There is one exception, by the way. If you are a student uh, and have a valid student ID, or you're under the age of twelve, you can still get in for free. That's good. Seems reasonable. Like I have a twelve-year-old. We're starting to f- like, we're, like we're at the point like uh, he's eleven, even yeah. though he's almost thirteen. Well, I carry my student ID till I was like twenty-four. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Uh, forget it. Uh, also, by the way, you, you might have heard that Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un were threatening nuclear war with each other uh, earlier this week. What a way to ring in the new year! Donald Trump on Twitter entering uh, the new year with a boom, saying that he has a bigger nuclear button than Kim Jong Un and his works. Well, uh, in Mexico, I didn't realize this, but it's something that happens at the beginning of every year. There's a psychic in Mexico. His name is uh, Antonio Vasquez. He's better known as El Brujo Mayor, which is the Grand Warlock. Yeah, sure. And every <laughs> and every year, he Sounds gives like his, a Mexican wrestling name, by the way. That's right? Great. He gives his predictions for the start of each year from all all different things, like politics, celebrity. Are we going to want to hear this? Yeah, sports. I'm terrified. <laughs> he says. I'm walking out. This is the psychic that speaks for all of Mexico. He says that there will not be nuclear war between hmm. the United States and North Korea. He's, How accurate is this guy? <laughs> Elise, I'm glad you asked. Uh, they actually went and took a look at his predictions, and they haven't always exactly been entirely true. Uh, but he did say, uh, quote, Night of swords, no bombs will fly, they will reach an agreement, end quote. No. That's what he said. Knight of Swords. Does that mean we have like a like a army conflagration, but no nukes? Maybe or? there'll be a, a sword duel. How, how does this guy compare to that octopus who predicts the Stanley Cup finals? Is he, <laughs> well, I, is, is that, that the official U.S. psychic? Yeah. He also predicted the World Cup, uh, the 2018 World Cup. He says Germany is going to defeat Spain in the final. I know nothing about war. that. It's a good goal for the year. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I'm Cameron Joseph from Talking Points Memo, sitting in for Bill this morning, and I'm with Elise Foley, one of the best reporters in the city on immigration issues. And we kind of have some big 
deal things coming down the pipeline in the next couple of days and weeks about immigration, don't we, Elise? Maybe. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We have people wanting to make a deal yeah. on immigration, um, and whether they'll actually do it is kind of to be determined. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, clearly Democrats want to help dreamers and want to keep kids who were brought here uh, generally as very young children uh, before they had any choice in the matter uh, in the country and able to work legally and go to school. Uh, program that Donald Trump abruptly ended last year after promising and suggesting that he wasn't going to. Another thing he's he's changed his mind, flip-flopped on, uh, and is now refusing to come along with a, a legal program. And I want to play a little bit of what uh, President Trump had to say about this issue yesterday because he's pushing for a lot of his big grand promises on immigration in exchange for this. Our position has been clear and very clear from the beginning. Any legislation on DACA must secure the border with a wall our current immigration system fails Americans. Chain migration is a total disaster, which threatens our security and our economy and provides a gateway for terrorism. Likewise, the visa lottery is bad for our economy and very bad for security. So I think everybody knows about the wall um, and that it's not physically possible to build a wall along the border, uh, given the canyons and rivers and such. Uh, chain migration and the visa lottery are two things that uh, more sophisticated anti-immigration Republicans have been pushing. Uh, and, uh, you know, can you just talk us through a little bit about what they're trying to do with this and how likely it is that they actually might be able to accomplish this? Yeah. So chain migration is a term that uh, people who are nativists prefer to talk about family reunification visas. So you are, you know, a lot of people might say uh, bringing, um, sponsoring your children to come to the U.S. if you're an American or a legal permanent resident as, you know, bringing your family together. That might be a way that some people would see it. Um, the way that they paint it is kind of taking the idea of family out of the picture and, uh saying that it's like this chain. So immigrants come and then they bring their relatives and then they bring their relatives, they bring their relatives. Uh, you know, there's that's a matter of debate whether that is how our immigration system should run. Currently, it's very family-based versus uh, what people call merit-based, which is based on, you know, your degrees, things like that. At the same time, even family reunification visas, people have to go through these various processes so not uh, easy to get. It's it's not easy to get. The wait times for some of them are like 20 years. There's people who've been waiting, uh, especially from countries like the Philippines, to come for all this time. Um, and there is just this idea that, you know, they shouldn't be allowed to. Uh, I think one thing that was telling Senator Tom Cotton is one person who's been pushing this. He made a comment uh, when he introduced a bill on this about how, you know, you don't need people bringing over their whole tribe which I think is a little indicative of the type of people he's specifically talking about, right? Originally, this when this was created, they were it was for you know Irish and Italian immigrants. Now it's for people largely more recent immigrants are more likely to be you know Latino or Asian, and uh, all of a sudden a lot, a lot of African all of a sudden, families yeah, using this program. All yeah. of a sudden, you know they don't want them. So anyway, the point is um, they are wanting to get rid of that. That's something that is a little bit more difficult. There are some people who want that, but then there are other people who see correctly that this is a goal to reduce immigration entirely. There's a lot of uh, Republicans who don't want to do that. They might want the immigration system to be different, but not 
have it, which is what Cotton wants. Yeah, and, and there's some you know talk from from more regional people. I mean, like the the how, the extent of what type of family you can sponsor, whether you should be able to sponsor cousins. But I mean, that's already been curtailed over the years. Yeah, so. and in in the past, you know, Democrats in the 2013 <clears throat> Comprehensive Immigration Bill that passed the Senate. They did change the legal immigration system. And so that's something that, uh, you know, politicians have agreed to in the past. However, it was part of like a much more expansive system, uh, system change. And it involved amping, you know, including larger types of other visas. So what yeah, and, and, you know, broad legalization, a pathway right. to citizenship a whole lot for, of other things. for close to 10 million people who are here undocumented. So, I mean, like. The what what Demo- what Republicans are asking Democrats to give up on this in exchange. I mean, like DACA is an incredibly. I'm not downplaying how important that is for about 800,000 people. Yeah, at the moment it's uh, closer to 700,000 based on you know people. Some people have found other ways to legal status or yeah. you know lost it, et cetera. But they're asking. This is a huge ask. And uh, really, I, I mean, do you think this is a realistic ask in, in trading for DACA? And do you I, think Democrats I don't. Are... On the chain migration yeah. thing, I, I don't. And even if you talk to dreamers, so if you talk to people with DACA, they are not wanting something that in exchange for their ability to work and stay uh, involves hurting other immigrants, other people in the undocumented population, which is why they've pushed so hard for something that's a clean Dream Act. That's the the preferred bill. That doesn't include all of this. I think the the diversity lottery that Trump talks about is probably a little bit easier of an ask. It's something that's a lot smaller. Um, you know, there's arguments to be made that we shouldn't be just kind of picking people out of a lottery to come to the states. You know, then they might not have the same level of um, connections here. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to note that the things Trump says about diversity vo- diversity visa lottery winners. There's just no basis for he has said that, you know, countries are just picking their worst people to send here. He said again yesterday that it's the worst people or, you know, well, not the best, because why would they send the best? I've asked the State Department. There's no involvement from other countries in picking who they send. That's just not how it works. There's no reason to think that these are the worst people. Um, They have to, you know, pass various Things have a certain level of education Incredibly or work experience process. and yeah. go through security screening. So you can pick and choose examples, as he's done, of people who have come here and done bad things. At the same time, you can pick a lot of examples of other Americans who have done bad things. Um, and there is the rate at which you've seen terrorist acts from diversity visa lottery winners is just not. It doesn't. is not. Backed up, backing yeah. up what he says. Now, the big question here that I have, I mean, obviously it matters greatly what Republicans are willing to do on this, but how hard Democrats are willing to fight and what they're willing to give up for on this. And, you know, I, I was there, you know, Chuck Schumer was talking about this yesterday. He's not going to neg- negotiate in public, but he also wouldn't fully rule out giving on some of these things. Uh, it's very interesting to me. I mean, this is something that a lot of dreamers and dreamer groups were furious that Democrats didn't force the issue before the end of the year for the short-term extension when they are just beginning negotiations and try and force a shutdown then. Um, I'm not positive that Democrats have the votes necessarily to block this. Not, not that Democratic leadership is going to give in on this, but some of these Democrats like Joe Donnelly, who didn't actually support the Dream Act in the first place, he's come around on it. John Tester uh, also has, has, has come around to support the Dream Act. Uh, you know, Heidi Heitkamp 
uh, Claire McCaskill, some of these senators facing really tough races next year, are going to want to vote to shut down the government over DACA and and whether they're going to have enough to hold together to uh, keep this together. You know, D- Doug Jones is a big question mark just coming into the Senate now. I mean, do, do you get the sense that there's enough unity from Democrats now that they're going to be able to force this issue? I don't know um, because in December there were a lot of them that said, look, we really want a solution on this. However, we can't risk a government shutdown over it. And there's no reason why anything has changed in the past month that would make those views different, right? Yeah. They, if they felt that way then, they probably feel that way now. Are uh, there nine Democrats see, or there, they see, I mean, I, I think so. Yeah, They passed it before. I think that they could get it through now. Um, at the same time, they've also gotten this kind of out from Mitch McConnell, um, the Senate majority leader, who said that he would hold a vote on something if there was a deal by the end of January. Uh, he's said that very publicly. So it's something that's you know, would be easy to hold him accountable for to some degree. Uh, so it's given them an out. I think yeah. the people who would want to vote for it, like, look, we're, we're, we're working on a deal we can't hold this hostage. You know, of course, the Democrats who say they won't vote for something without a DACA fix say that that would not be voting to shut down the government. You know, this is uh, the Republicans are in control. They should be able to yeah. do it on their own. Well, and I think McConnell knows that however this plays out, if the government shuts down with unified Republican control, they're probably going to get blamed. And uh, why don't we play what uh, McConnell had to say about this yesterday? Because I think it was telling both about where how willing he is to try and negotiate on this. All those talks, I think, are going well. Nobody wants to uh, uh, shut the government down on either side. I think that on the either side part, I think there's some Democrats who would love to see government shut down. They think that would be terrible for the Republicans politically um, and aren't too scared of this. I don't think that some of these red state Democratic senators are necessarily there, and that could be the tipping point. But um, it's going to be really interesting to to see this tangled in with so many other issues uh, I mean, do you get the sense that this this is the biggest thing they're negotiating around, or do you think that this is kind of one in a matrix of chaotic issues uh, in terms of funding the government? I think it's one in a matrix. And when you hear people like Chuck Schumer talk about it, they always, you know, he always mentions we're on the budget, we're working on CHIP, uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program. We want funding for veterans. We want funding for uh, disaster relief. And also for dreamers. So he, you know, they're not setting it up as we need dreamers or nothing in leadership. There are certain people who say they won't vote for anything without DACA. But I think that there are enough people who, you know, if they get something on something else and they're able to say, look, we're working on something, we can get a vote on something, then they'll vote for it. Do you get the I mean, I, I saw a statement from from uh, Senators Tillis and Langford, who are two of the Republicans who are working on this basically saying this ain't going so well. I mean, do you get the sense yeah. that they're getting closer? Or do you get the sense that this is this divide is maybe unbridgeable before this other deal, in which case Democrats won't have much leverage to try and force this? Well, it's a sort of interesting situation. So Tillis and Lankford were, Lankford were more involved in the bipartisan negotiations in the beginning and are a lot less so now, you know, sort of not at all, according to people I've talked to. So Right now, the people who are involved in the bipartisan negotiations on the Republican side working very closely with Democrats are Jeff Flake, Lindsey Graham, and Cory Gardner. So those are the people That's who- That's a big shift. I mean, th- those, those are the guys people are, who are talking. gang of eight type Republicans. Exactly. Are... 
And so they're trying to find some sort of compromise in a situation where you have somebody like Tom Cotton, who is supposedly involved in trying to come to a deal on this. He says he wants a deal on it. The guy's goal is to restrict immigration levels. I don't think that he is going to vote for an eventual deal. All these guys who went to the White House yesterday, except for uh, Graham, are people who are opposed to these types of things in the past. You know, immigration advocates feel like John Cornyn. They're like, he's tried to block this stuff so many times, tanked these past Yeah, these he's past like the, the, the originator of moving the goalposts on this. He's been doing exactly. it since 2005, 2006. Yeah, these, mean, these, like, Democrats oh, I, I want to help mean, fix it. He and John McCain, I don't think the relationship is ever quite fully repaired since those original negotiations because people felt like Cornyn kept promising, oh, I agree X for Y and then changing his mind. On yeah, that. like if you look back to 2013, they gave so much border security yeah. that some Republicans even said it was overkill. Like it was more than clearly more than yeah. was necessary. Yeah. The Corker compromise. Exactly. Was so much money thrown at it. So yeah. much money. And a lot of Republicans did. A lot of Republicans did vote for it. Yeah. You can look at the Republicans and, who didn't, and I think that it's fair to predict that on a future deal they probably wouldn't vote for that either, unless it was because, you know, Trump liked it yeah. and they didn't like Obama, which, like, fair enough. That's why people vote for stuff all the time is right. their person is in power. So basically, uh, you know, Langford and Tillis have a bill that's kind of like the DREAM Act that would give legal status. But then they also signed on to this bill that uh, Grassley and Cornyn put forward that they said was a compromise sort of bill. At the same time, uh, Dick Durbin, who's kind of the main dreamer guy in the Senate, the main supporter of dreamers, I think, um, he had already rejected it. So it's not something that, you know, was really a, any way a democratic bipartisan that was a non-starter. thing. Yeah. And it was massive. They, you know, they say that this all needs to be done piecemeal, but this bill was like, 500 pages long. There's like two pages on dreamers and then a bazillion pages on every other immigration issue. So anyway, the question will be whether Republicans push for so much that it's just not something that Democrats can support yeah. because it's like you said, the dreamer group is a big group, but it's not as big as the entire undocumented population. Right. And and I think, you know, you just don't, never know what the president's going to do. And I think the party is likely to follow Trump on this to some extent. Uh, he isn't the type to often get into the nitty gritty of policy, um, but is often wildly impulsive about whether or not he supports things, as you saw with DACA in the first place, as we saw with marijuana, which you were talking about earlier in the show, and whether states are going to be able to regulate themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I, there's plenty of people in the Trump administration very close to him uh, that are even more hawkish than he is. And, you know, I, I think it was, it was telling what the, the ICE director had to say earlier this week about where some of the administration are. And I think Je Jeff Sessions and, and, and Stephen Miller and a lot of Trump's other advisors are here. But I mean, this, this is how uh, James Holman had to talk about uh, sanctuary cities, which is a controversial issue, but you know, pretty extreme language he used here. This is a victimization of the American community. This isn't America I grew up in. We got to take these sanctuary cities on. We got to take them to court. And we got to start charging some of these politicians with crimes. It's talking about charging politicians who support sanctuary cities with crimes. Yeah. I don't know whether he Charging was... Charging with harboring uh, yeah. undocumented aliens. Yeah. I mean, I, in, in a way that suggests to me that this wasn't about, like, taking the city to court and trying to fight legally out, like, no. actually trying to send... It was specifically not. He was very clear that 
specifically yeah, not trying to send like the mayor of New York City or the mayor of Los Angeles to prison for harboring undocumented immigrants. I mean, I talk to people. That's not how the law works. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It, it's not a doable thing. It, but the point is to scare people, right? Right. And then the point is that that he's the head of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Maybe you can't arrest, you know, Los Angeles Mayor Garcetti, but there's a lot of other people you can lock up. And I think it's interesting, you know, what's getting lost in some of this is is some of the internal enforcement that's going on. And, and you did a, a really interesting story uh, about a national uh, motel chain that was involved with this. You want to talk about the Motel 6 involvement and uh, sharing records with uh, ICE? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think this is important to note that a lot of this stuff goes back past Trump. This is pre-Trump stuff going on as well. So Motel 6, there was a story in the Phoenix New Times last year where they exposed that two Motel 6 uh, branches in Arizona were giving their entire guest list to ICE. And then ICE was using them, going through them and, you know, picking <coughs> people up. At the time, Motel 6 said that this was, you know, the national chain, the national branch was like, this is, oh, this is a local decision. We are stopping this. Uh, in Washington, the attorney general started to do an investigation after this report into what was happening at Motel 6s in the state of Washington and found, according to the AG's office there, Bob Ferguson, Bob Ferguson's office, found that there were at least six Motel 6 locations. These are corporate owned locations that were giving their entire guest list to ICE and um, at least six people had been picked up because of it. And so this is something that they sued over. Um, now, uh, the state of Washington has sued Motel 6 for uh, invading the privacy of guests because obviously this is not just giving the information of undocumented immigrants to ICE. It's giving everybody's information. And we're talking not just their names, but also their dates of birth, uh, their license plate numbers, a lot of information. That and, people and, think and, is private when they right. go to and, a hotel, and we're not right? just talking about like everybody. Everybody. Like you know, there's there's arguments for well, well, if you're not, you don't have the same legal protections if you're an undocumented immigrant. But this isn't. They're well, giving. Like, every, yeah. Now I would. I, I mean, there are. If you stayed at this though. motel six, that yeah, I mean there are, but they're not the same yeah. constitutional legal to like, the extent. Right, extent. The people that stop at Motel Six doesn't know who's undocumented and who's not, right? So yeah. uh, one of the things. Washington, if you stayed at that Motel Six, your information was given to ICE. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so they um, this goes back. This is from back to 2015. So this is, goes back further. But it's sort of a indication that, you know, as we're all focused on DACA, as is an important issue, we still have all this enforcement going on in the country. As uh, the ICE dire acting director, Thomas Holman, has said, they are um, going to be unapologetic about it. He's really taken issue with the people who take issue with them picking up people who haven't been convicted of crimes. Um, being in the country without status makes you eligible to be deported. Um, and they don't he's right. They don't have to have a criminal record to be deported. So he's really taken issue with the people who say that they should only deport. You know, he says yeah. the focus is criminals, but, you know, we're going to pick up people that we find. And he threatened to do more in California because they passed this uh, so-called sanctuary law, which, for the record, they do still cooperate with ICE to some extent. It's not yeah. it's not really how um, the administration paints it. But I think the goal is to get maximum cooperation with local law enforcement. It does make things a lot easier for ICE to be able to pick people up in jails. And they argue that it's a lot safer for them as well. Um, and 
one way to do that is by intimidating local officials into doing this. And so threatening their funding um, over their policies, even if it's something that's been held up in court, uh, saying that they could get personally criminally prosecuted for it. Even if it's not something that's doable, uh, I think one of the goals is just to scare them. Yeah. And to and tell the public that, you know, if your your officials are putting you in danger by these policies. Yeah. And I think a lot of people with the sanctuary cities, you know, at first blush, they're like, oh, that doesn't sound right. But, you know, I mean, it's it's one of those things that the whole point of it is to get people in undocumented, you know, immigrant communities to cooperate with the police so that more serious crimes get solved. And the deep irony of what Jeff Sessions is trying to do by pulling funds from New York and, and L.A. and other places, threatening their terror funds, the program was named after a New York police officer who was murdered in the line of duty by uh, crack dealers while protecting an undocumented immigrant who was working with the cops to try and get these guys in prison. And so, you know, that's the, exactly the type of person you want to not have fear coming to the police and believe that the police are going to try and protect you if you're coming forward to try and get scary, hardened criminals like you know Trump always talks about the MS-13 gang leaders uh, thrown in, thrown in jail and thrown out of the country. You want people who are here illegally, who are here without papers, to feel like they can talk to the cops, and that and that's the argument for sanctuary cities. And I think something that often gets lost in this discussion, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's a lot of terror in, in immigrant communities, and not not just people who are undocumented. There's plenty of kid, you know, people who are citizens who I've talked to, who, who you know, they've you know are 19 years old, and their parents are already talking, you know, having to set up legal documents because their parents are undocumented. They're citizens. If the parents get deported, they have to have a game plan for. Okay, if the parents are deported, I need to be able to claim my my younger siblings, and I'm going to be their legal guardian so they can stay in the U.S. and so they don't get thrown into you know. Uh, foster care. And so, you know, the, the real life implications of this, I think, often get overlooked uh, it, when Republicans, Donald Trump tends to talk about this as a crime and punishment issue solely. Um, this has a lot of real world implications and not just for immigrant, you know, undocumented immigrants, but for a lot of American citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And with citizens as well, there's a fear that the more you involve police and immigration enforcement, the more you might be encouraging racial profiling, people being stopped just because they look Latino. And that affects citizens as well. Uh, I I do want to note that beyond just the idea of cooperating with police, a lot of uh, law enforcement agencies have stopped holding people for ICE without a warrant because there were court rulings that said that you can't be holding people. It's against the Constitution to hold people beyond when you otherwise release them. So what we're talking about is not, you know, them releasing a murderer who they would otherwise be holding. We're talking about somebody who gets arrested. They're supposed to be, you know, able to go home tomorrow. Yeah. And instead, ICE asked them to be held for a longer time. So if ICE produces a warrant, a lot of these places will do it. If ICE doesn't, they say, look, we we cannot do that. That opens us up to an unconstitutional act. We can't do it. So that also gets totally, totally painted over. I think the way the administration explains sanctuary policies is completely often completely inaccurate. It's um, wild, the things that they say and how much they differ from what even the Justice Department will acknowledge is the truth about you know, these policies. Trump administration saying things that may not be totally factually accurate. <laughs> Breaking news. Breaking yes. news. Whoa. Still true in 2018. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, we got a very quick segment here. You think DACA gets done? I I don't know. I think that there's a chance that it does because I think there are a lot of people who genuinely don't want to see all the news stories about people that it doesn't. I think there's also a chance that, you know, Republicans put something forward that's just like not something Democrats can support. And then they're like, look, we gave you something. Look, Democrats voted to deport dreamers and they just get become another political football. I think there's a good chance of that. I think there is as well. All right, Elise. Well, really appreciate you coming in. This is uh, enlightening. <laughs> Happy New Year conversation. And uh, glad to have you back soon. What am I here for? <laughs> there were times uh, where I screwed up. There's no question about it. Give I've me one. Uh, I mean, the inauguration, you brought it up. I, I would say that's first and foremost. There was a, an event where I was trying to uh, talk about how evil Assad was. Right. And, and I screwed that up royally. Brought up Hitler, right. Thank you for reminding me. Mm-hmm. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. I am Cameron Joseph sitting in for Bill this morning. You can find me on Twitter at Cam underscore Joseph. This half hour, we got a man who I got to imagine has been pretty busy over uh, the last 24 hours. Uh, Executive Director of Normal, Eric Altieri. You can find them at N O R M L on the tweeters. And uh, yeah, Eric, a little little bit of news in your uh, pot world. Uh, not how I quite expected the new year to start, <laughs> but uh, you know, we kind of always assumed something like this was coming. Uh, we knew Jeff Sessions violently hates marijuana and anything to do with it, and was always looking for a chance to really push back on all our progress we've made. And he finally, about a year in, took that opportunity. Yeah, and so, so let's walk through exactly what he did yesterday. He basically. He didn't say you can't you know, like like all pot is illegal and we're going to dis, you know dismantle every system. He he said the state attorneys in these states he basically remove like let them go after this as they see fit. And and what that leads to is this total patchwork of confusion where now the state attorneys can do whatever they want and it's a mystery what they will be doing state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And in all of these states with, you know, fully functional medical marijuana programs, uh, they can be gone after, you know, not, not to mention the eight states that it is totally legal for recreational use where states are raising millions and billions of dollars for their state budgets. Um, you know, California had a real fun three days there mm-hmm. between the new year when this became officially legal uh, in the state uh, for recreational sales and his decision yesterday. I mean, what what does this do to uh, you know, these state governments? Uh, you know, setting aside uh, obviously all, all the civil liberties and, and policing issues, just in terms of the money. Well, it really kind of hit the nail on the head. It was already confusing and chaotic, and yeah. now it's just absolutely Made a, total hash a whole new level. Uh, the, the tension between state and federal law was always a problem, but under Obama, we did have what. He rescinded the Cole memo, which laid out, you know, fairly simple guidelines saying to U.S. attorneys, if they're not selling to children, if, you know, they're not getting involved with criminal cartels, then then pretty much leave them alone. 
that's out the window. And these U.S. attorneys were let off the leash to really do as they see fit. And what that looks like in practice is something we're all going to have to watch and see in the coming days. Uh, It's important to note that Jeff Sessions himself pretty much just appointed the entire new slate of U.S. attorneys that are taking their jobs you know, as of this week, yeah. actually. And they've, I mean, because there's a wholesale firing yeah. by Trump, mm-hmm. mostly to get re- rid of Preet Bharara, it seems, in New York. So, and you the, have to imagine marijuana came up guys. in that job interview. Yeah. So, <laughs> <right>? so <laughs> kind of an area of interest for the guy. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that it, it's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays out. Fascinating, and, horrifying, you know. Because you know, it's, 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 we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, Eric, in, in some of our Christmas week programming that you can still see on YouTube at youtube.com slash The Bill Price Show. But uh, there was sort of a sense that, like, maybe the people who believe in the rights of marijuana smokers and people who believe that the, like like we're going we have been going in the right direction for so long maybe we dodged a bullet like maybe because the Trump administration didn't make it such a priority in their first year that maybe things were just going to keep continuing on this path of things getting better and and clearly not yeah, well, maybe I'm just the eternal pessimist. Um, yeah. I always <laughs> expected something to happen. Yeah. Um, I knew that time didn't necessarily mean we were off the hook just yet. Uh, you know, he had to get to sanctuary cities and everybody else first. He has, he has a list of priorities. Yeah. Uh, so when he finally came around to us, uh, I kind of knew it was going to happen. And now we're in this new world. But what it could do, and it may do, is really catalyze Congress into doing something. Uh, We've seen immense backlash to this decision already from members of Congress and from people that you wouldn't necessarily associate with being super strong on the issue. Yeah. You had Senator Gardner out of Colorado, a Republican, say that he would hold up all DOJ nominations that have to go through his committee until this gets resolved because Sessions promised him prior to his nomination that he wasn't going to go after Colorado marijuana. That, I think, was so telling. Yeah. That Sessions... Told Cory Gardner that he wasn't going to go after it, and Cory Gardner made the point yesterday. He said, "When I talked to Sessions, yeah. I asked specifically about this, and he lied to me." I do not recall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like you've got a fairly conservative Republican senator from Colorado that has seen the impact that marijuana has had, legalized marijuana has had on Colorado over the years, which has been. A resounding success. Um, like he's he looks like he's willing to go to the mat to preserve this. Well, and more importantly, he's representing his constituency at yeah. this sure. point. Uh, the law in Colorado is more popular with state voters now than it was when it was passed. Uh, so as we legalize more states, you're building in even if these people would never support us by their natural inclinations, you're building in a reason for them to. So you've seen people like even like Elizabeth Warren, who used to be kind of wishy-washy on this issue since Massachusetts legalized, is now a pretty vocal advocate. Yeah. Well, that that, that, like, I'm curious, and I will be really curious to see how the Democrats respond to this and handle this, but like Democrats, I think as a party, should just plant their flag and say, full decriminalization, legalize it, sell it, make money off of it, yeah, and, and and it's been really interesting. I was up on the Senate yesterday after this came out, and there was a big split in the Democrats who want to talk about this. You know, there there are some there Democrats who, uh, right? But I, and and uh, you know, I was noticing the older generation Democrats who aren't running for things still kind of have an older view of this, and you know, like may have states' rights, maybe you know, kind of you know mealy mouth about it, sure. not not interesting, jumping on it politically. All of the presidential possible presidential candidates. 
uh, that I talked to, you know, Bernie Sanders came out firing hard yeah, on yeah. this, saying, you know, that this, this is ridiculous. So we have an opioid crisis. Why are we wasting time and resources on this? This is insane. Kirsten Gillibrand, um, you know, part, part of Yeah, well, I talked to Kamala <clears throat> Harris yesterday, who, you know, is is for, former attorney general of her state. And she was super feisty about this. And, and I can pull up the quote in a second, but. Which is um, funny because she was actually terrible upon this. Yeah, this <laughs> she is, was this attorney is, general. This, this, I mean, she has moved on this, but you know, she's got her eye on a where her state is. And this past, you know, the referendum passed by double digits three months ago, at the same time she was winning. Um, I, I mean, what she said to me was, "California voters have spoken in terms of where they stand on this issue, and if you look at public polling, the American public is also speaking." And I think that that's telling. You know, she she basically said this guy is not only misprioritized the limited resources of the department; he's frankly out of sync with where the vast majority of Californians, I would suggest, even the vast majority of Americans are. And she's right. And even if you are just a finger in the wind politician looking at this, Gallup polled on this particular issue: sixty-four percent of Americans, fifty-one percent of Republicans, yeah, too. a more major, bare majority of Republicans in that poll. And you know, I've seen other polls that are a little lower than that support legalized marijuana. And frankly, this is one of those issues that used to be a base motivator for the right. This is a base motivator for the left now. And I don't think there are that many people on the right who are getting super fired up about banning weed. And there's plenty of Tea Partiers who are out there on this, too, uh, who think this this is, you know, A, should be a states' rights issue. The people who actually believe in states' rights as opposed to just pay lip service when it's convenient for them and a policy issue. Um, and, and B, you know, see that opioid crisis is a huge crisis marijuana isn't causing massive problems in the same way and and the you know limited federal resources should be spent on things that are actually killing people and destroying communities well, and a couple of things on that point, um, even higher, is that it's about 74, 75% of the public, regardless of their support for legalization, are against federal intervention. Yeah. Uh, they believe it's a state's issue. States should be able to set their own policies. Right. And that seems like yeah. the smartest frame for, for a Democrat who's, you know, trying to navigate the, the primary. Yeah. Like, this should be a state's issue. And and do, do the same thing that, that Democrats did on gay rights for a while. Yeah. It's like, states should decide. And I'm old enough to remember when the Republicans, like actually held that belief on states' issues, right? Like, well, it's always yeah. been the ones that they like. Right. right. I mean, this, <laughs> this has been this... Gay is, marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, yeah, yeah. we, we, no, we no, saw no. the exact same fight on this more than a decade ago when I was in college in California, and they started legalizing medicinal marijuana in a few places, and that was the big scandal as opposed to recreational, which shows, you know, and the public polling even... Public polling at that point on medicinal marijuana was not as in favor of medicinal as public polling is now for recreational, which yeah. shows how far this has moved. But the the Bush administration, which kept talking about states' rights and other things, on this one was, nope, federalism, 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 like federal government is going to enforce this, and did raids on, on, on medical marijuana places. Um, and so... This is a huge cultural shift, and we've seen the polling move on this faster even than on gay marriage, uh, which is astounding. And we talked about this a little earlier in the show. Part of that is just generational shift, that, oh, for sure. that old people are dying, yeah. and old people uh, are the most resistant to The this, founder but. of Normal Keystrop always said, you know, at worst, we just have to outlive our opponents, uh, which is absolutely true because as the demographic shift, they're shifting overwhelmingly in our favor. Yeah. In fact, one of the only demographics now that Republicans have become a majority support that – Pretty sure the only demographic poll that doesn't support marijuana legalization is 65 and up. Yeah. Um, every other thing they test for in the cross tabs does. And the Democrats really need to grab this issue if they're going to, because it's not that hard for Republicans to take it. It fits very, as we talked about, it fits very comf comfy in their in their ideology. And we've seen some people like uh, Representative Tom Garrett, a freshman congressman out of Southern Virginia, 
very, very conservative guy, ran on marijuana policy issues. First, one of the first bills he introduced was the one of the widest-ranging marijuana descheduling bills in Congress. Yeah. So they could take it. Um, but we are seeing Democrats begin to move. You're going to have people like your Claire McCaskills and stuff that are still going to be you know, wishy-washy as hell on this. But Pelosi's statement was strong. And if you look at the recent elections, uh, you know, Phil Murphy in New Jersey yeah. ran on this. Yeah. He made no effort to hide it. This was right. out there, main campaign issue, and he won with 65% of the vote. I, I want to ask you this because I, I think that one of the things that we saw sort of to, sort of start to really emerge in 2017 was the idea that states don't really have to comply <laughs> with what Donald Trump and the Trump administration says that they, he wants the states to comply with. So we have this story about Jeff Sessions. Hours later, the Vermont State House passed marijuana legalization. In other words, screw you mm. to Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump. So what would it look like if if Vermont, California, which just legalized it, as we talked earlier, they 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 expect to see a billion dollars worth of revenue within the first three years of this legalization? So you've got these states that have already gone down this path and are making money off of it. And they want to continue going down that path. So what if they were to just say no? And that's the important question: is like, what can the DOJ do, and what can they not do? It's yeah. important to note what they cannot do is and will not do, is they're not going to go in and start using federal resources to arrest people for consuming. Um, it, that would be a really bizarre scenario. I mean, I guess it's 2018, and what we've yeah. seen, I wouldn't rule it out at this point. <laughs> sure. But they don't have the resources, one, and they can't do anything to compel a state to criminalize it and make arrests. So the legalization of possession and cultivation for 21 and up is going to stick no matter what, okay. like it is in D.C. Sure. Um, the question is, is, is the, the, re- side. the retail side yeah. is where it gets they have influence. And they can attack that a whole number of ways. It could be just some several threatening letters coming from your U.S. attorney saying your operations don't comply with the CSA. It could be raising a RICO charge against several businesses to make an example of somebody. Yeah. It could be raiding these places like we kind of saw during the early Obama years and the Bush years. They have a whole plethora of options. And now that the memo is gone, all it takes is one crusading new U.S. attorney who wants to make a name for themselves to go out there and start, you know, kick this off, get their name in the headlines, get their picture on the news. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. So because we had talked to you before and also Keith from Normal about in this new era of pot uh, commerce, you have all this money, but like you don't necessarily know where to put it because it right. was, you know, made by selling marijuana. Right. And right. like that that I didn't I hadn't really thought about. That's a and that was a huge problem. That was it was leading to risk of crime in Colorado because these places couldn't just go to a bank and they were st- they had huge cash deposits and so they were targets. Present tense, that's still happening. Yeah. They're still not allowed to use mm. banks. Um and that I it becomes even more of a absolutely ridiculous thing when you look at the tax side of it. They can't deduct anything a standard business can deduct from their taxes. They're already paying an inflated amount. And then when they pay their taxes, since they don't have access to banking, they have to pay in cash. Yeah. Well, surprise, the IRS charges like a $10,000, $20,000 fee if you pay your taxes in cash. Right. So now they're being fined by paying in cash, which they're being forced to do. Um, so, you know, it creates this unstableness that, as I mentioned earlier, existed before. And now it's going to be worse. We'd seen some banks warming to this yeah. and starting to take the risk. And, you know, we've seen some legislators in the fence start warming to this. But this, you know, could really affect at least the more risk-adverse institutional players uh, for yeah. the time being. And I, I think that's, that's – uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're probably talking about when, not if. 
we have a regime where legal pot can exist in a stable way, but this just kicked it a lot further down the line yeah. and um, just causes a, a ton of instability right now. Uh, and there's, you know, like, look, there's already been instability. This was not a system that was working perfectly. Um, but this move was towards more chaos and less predictability. And, you know, I mean, it, it, and it's a reprioritization of pot being an important thing. They're going to spend a bunch of time and resources and I'm not on sure who this is for. Like, who is this yeah. appealing to? Uh, you know, as we established with the poll numbers, the public's overwhelmingly in support. At worst, most of them, you know, don't really care. Um, yeah. You know, what business interest really is pulling their ear? Is it really just Jeff Sessions and his warped desire to take us back to the just say no reefer madness? I think he's, he's a strong ideologue on this and, and has been from the start. And I think often in politics, things are driven by politics. I think sometimes in policy, things are driven by people's yeah. strongly held convictions, whether right or wrong. And I think he's taken a stand on this for better or for worse. And, uh, you know, I don't see how this is going to function particularly well. No, I mean, it's interesting how, I mean, this is, legalization is supported by a lot of Trump voters. And in yeah. fact, when I was interfacing with them during the election, they were all convinced he was pro-legalization. He was. I he's mean, bit, maybe not pro-legalization, but pro-states rights he, on this. We played that clip rights. earlier. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's up to the states, was his verbatim quote that we played earlier. So... And medical, of course, medical, right? Medical's fine. You know, yeah. Yeah, like you said, all that stuff. And beyond that, people are like, he'll never do anything against it. Even when he appointed Sessions, he said, no, Trump's a businessman. He's going to shut Sessions down. And I was like, all right, we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, sure enough, here we are. So there's going to be a lot of angry people in his base about this. It really they, was. They love marijuana, too. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it really was bittersweet to see some of the headlines from during the campaign of, well, Trump is going to be the better candidate on pot issues than Hillary Clinton. Which was always a ridiculous thing to say. Which was always <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. But like at the same time, uh, Hillary Clinton came out in support of medical marijuana. Yeah, which, she wasn't great at all. Which, like, as we talked about, that is Le the lowest always, hurdle. That yeah. is a very low but, hurdle to get over. Oh, no, she was, you know, her, her position on marijuana was brave if this was 96. Sure. Like, you know, <laughs> right, it right, it right, wasn't right. progressive right. at all, um, right. particularly when you had, you know, Bernie Sanders coming out for full descheduling, full legalization, um, rather full-throatedly. Yeah. She's like, oh, well, maybe, do you, maybe make it move to Schedule 2, and, you know, medical's cool, and maybe we do some more research. She can inhale uh, poll numbers. Yeah. But I mean, more importantly, I mean, because despite it not being, you know, a technically a partisan issue at the voter level, it still very much is at the legislative level. Mm -hmm. um, so if we were sitting in a place where we did have a Democratic president of a generic Democratic president, generic Democratic Senate, generic Democratic House, this is something that would easily pass um, because whether or not they'll co-sponsor. Yeah. If, if it was put out for it, if, you know, just if they put it out for a floor vote, um, Democrats would majority, majority of them would vote for it. Yeah, um, even if they don't advocate for yeah. it, they have no problem saying yes if it were to come to them. Yeah, or at least you know codify that it's a states' rights issue. Yeah. So I we mean, need to make sure they actually you know ensconce that stance and campaign on it, um, or to, you know be like the or push their opponents to because this needs to become a campaign issue in 2018. Yeah, uh, it's going to become an even bigger one in 2020 when even more states will be voting. I mean, I think it's going to be a campaign issue in a few places. I I, I mean, I think that. Uh, some of these California Republicans, this is going to be tricky for, uh, especially you know the Southern California folks in, in these districts. Uh, the one that, that's even bigger, you know, Dean Heller is a mm -hmm. senator from Nevada where this is legal, 
um, and making the state some good money. And he basically was the only Republican. There, there's there's five Republicans from states, uh, Republican senators from states where this is legal. And he was the only one who didn't push back at all on sessions. Basically, like both of the Alaska Republicans, I, had, I talked to Dan Sullivan, mm-hmm. and he wasn't super strong on it, but he was, you know, this, you know, I, not crazy about what was happening. Um, Lisa Murkowski was out there. I heard uh, Susan Collins. I heard had said something critical. Uh, you know, obviously Cory Gardner came out really firing hard. Heller was kind of wishy-washy on this, and, and you know he's kind of known for being a wishy-washy guy without <laughs> taking any policy positions on anything, scaring his own shadow. But um, e- e- even for for Dean Heller, this this was notable, um, and he got hit. Not only by the Democrat who immediately was bashing him for this, but he is facing a pro-Trump Tea Party primary guy, Danny Tarkanian, mm-hmm. and Tarkanian came out blasting Sessions for this and saying this is a, should be a states' rights issue and we should be able to do what we vo- the voters have spoken here. And so, I think you're right. I think this is one of those, those uh, you know, if you build it, they will come. It'd be the a base state- motivator for sure in places yeah. like Nevada. Yes. If you yeah. if you talk to, I don't the think most- it's going to be the biggest political no, issue no, no. In the cycle, but but it could help you yeah. generate some of the you know less traditional voters to come out, uh, particularly you know millennials and uh, you know other groups that support this by large margins. If the, if you frame this in like you like you like legal marijuana. You want to make sure we keep it, then you better come out and you know vote for yeah. not Dean Heller. So, right. Well, and, and I and I think so many people, uh, so frankly, so many white people think of this as kind of like oh, like haha, funny smoking weed in Black and Hispanic communities. This is serious. This yeah. is a yeah. are you going to arrest my son who makes a you know who who smoking a little bit of weed like the, 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 this is you know you see widely disparate policing tactics uh, on black and Hispanic communities versus versus white communities. And in those communities where you're worried about drop-off vote, and I don't frankly think you need to worry too much about drop-off vote with Hispanics in this midterm, uh, given Donald Trump as president. Uh, but but the black community, this is a, a real base motivator, and it's because they're going to come after your family and not that you know for, for for something that in some of these places has been deemed legal. Well, it would seem incredibly likely that the minority business owners are already struggling to get into the industry. I I would put dollars to donuts here that they're going to be the first ones targeted as well because they're already most vulnerable. They don't have the legal representation they need, um, and they're already just breaking into it. Uh, so I think that uh, overcriminalization of communities of color that we've seen through the war on marijuana is going to continue through his attempt to crack down on the retail stores and obviously if it all goes backwards these people know that they're going to be arrested again um, these communities are going to be over policed they're going to see all the problems that they had under the previous regime yeah and this, and this bleeds into the immigration issue you know with uh you know stops for possession leading to to incarceration deportation um i mean this this is I, I think that some people overstate the political ramifications. But I think some people just completely dismiss it. And I think this is one of those things that in certain communities and with certain voters, this matters a heck of a lot, um, who may not be that politically engaged in other things. And so it, it's going to be really fascinating to see how this plays. Um, this is a very fast-moving issue. I mean, I don't, I don't know how long you've been at normal, but i got to imagine um, that the politics... About 10 years. I mean, mm-hmm. how different are the politics now than when you started? Uh, when I first started, uh, George W. Bush was still president. So there was not a whole lot happening. Um, I think we had 12 medical states or something. Right. I mean, you guys were kind of viewed as a fringe group, frankly. We were. We were. Um, We used to not be able to get our calls returned from congressmen, and now they're calling us begging for money and support and to write their bills for them. Uh, So the way that it shifted so quickly, and it basically was the weirdest thing to me, is like it was kind of like the Michael Phelps moment happened with the picture of him hitting the bomb. And that became this like cultural touchstone that got covered everywhere, and people were like, oh, Michael Phelps is smoking. 
And then, you know, through the election of Obama and all his quotes getting circulated, like, you know, we should probably decriminalize. Um, it began to, you know, soften the image. Uh, well, and Obama was the first president to admit smoking pot. I smoked think. a lot of pot. Chum <laughs> <laughs> gang. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and it wasn't an issue. You know, I mean, frankly, even him doing coke wasn't that big of an issue politically. Yeah, they tried, and it just fell flat. So they're like, they moved on. You never yeah. really heard much of it again, other than you know, you'll get your Alex Joneses making something out of it. But <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. But not, touching that one, not touching that one. Yeah, uh, I mean, just like on that point of just nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. <laughs> you've either, if you've made it to a, a grown person, if you've made it to adulthood and you've never smoked pot, been exposed to pot, like, I, I think that's, those people are the minority at this point. Well, the one thing that used to actually be a predicting factor for support was if you had children in the house. Yeah. Uh, and recent polls have actually shown that it's completely gone. They used to trail by you know, double-digit points. Now they're either equal or higher in some situations than non-children households. Yeah. Uh, so there's, again, like it's getting to the point where it's passe to care about it. It's like the cool factor is gone. Uh, people have seen it in all these states being sold without problems. Uh, they're ready to, for this whole drug war to be over with and yeah. just move on. And, and, I mean, Colorado is interesting. Cause, I mean, it's definitely, definitely Democratic-leaning state at this point. But, I mean, Republican... You know, Republican leaders in the state, and not just uh, Cory Gardner, but uh, you know, Mike Kaufman is a congressman in a very tough reelection race. who came out very hard against this yesterday. Uh, his his wife is is uh, I want to say attorney general of the state, and, and has been pro- you know part of her job was, was prosecuting you know trade you know basically selling it so it can go to Nebraska and other neighboring states. And you know, she was like, "We're not going to change our priorities." Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, don't freak out. I think it was her yeah, actual conflict. Uh, Colorado Senate Dems, however, said. And I pretty much quote verbatim. Everybody panic and freak out? No. They, you can have our marijuana when you pry it from our warm, interesting to look at hands. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we could live without the stereotyping, but I did get a chuckle out of it. That is. <laughs> but at least, you know, they're trying to be culturally relevant. That uh, is funny. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to see how this develops over the next years, but over, especially over the next couple of weeks and months. Fingers crossed. Thanks for coming on. Good stuff, guys. This is The Bill Press Show.